This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt Troutwine. The Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. Chapter 11. Christmas Eve in a Lumber Camp by Ralph Connor. It was due to a mysterious dispensation of providence and a good deal to Leslie Graham that I found myself in the heart of the Seelkirks for my Christmas Eve as the year 1882 was dying. It had been my plan to spend my Christmas far away in Toronto with such bohemian and boon companions as could be found in that cosmopolitan and kindly city. But Leslie Graham changed all that, for discovering me in the village of Black Rock with my traps all packed, waiting for the stage to start for the landing. Thirty miles away, he bore down upon me with resistless force. And I found myself recovering from my surprise only after we had gone in his lumber sleigh some six miles on our way to his camp up in the mountains. I was surprised and much delighted, though I would not allow him to think so, to find that his old-time power over me was still there. He could always, in the old varsity days, dear wild days, make me do what he liked. He was so handsome and so reckless, brilliant in his classwork, and the prince of the halfbacks on the rugby field, and with such power of fascination as would extract the heart out of a wheelbarrow, as Barney Lundy used to say. And thus it was that I found myself just three weeks later. I was to have spent two or three days on the afternoon of December 24th, standing in Graham's Lumber Camp Number 2, wondering at myself. But I did not regret my changed plans, for in those three weeks I had raided a cinnamon bear's den and had wakened up a grizzly. But I shall let that grizzly finish the tale. He probably sees more humor in it than I. The camp stood in a little clearing and consisted of a group of three long, low shanties with smaller shacks near them all built of heavy, unhewn logs, with door and window in each. The grub camp, with cookshed attached, stood in the middle of the clearing. At a little distance was the sleeping camp with the office built against it, and about a hundred yards away on the other side of the clearing stood the stables, and near them the smitty. The mountains rose grandly on every side, throwing up their great peaks into the sky. The clearing in which the camp stood was hewn out of a dense pine forest that filled the valley and climbed halfway up the mountainsides and then frayed out and scattered in stunted trees. It was one of those wonderful Canadian winter days, bright with a touch of sharpness in the air that did not chill, but warmed the blood like draughts of wine. The men were up in the woods, and the shrill scream of the blue jay flashing across the open, the impudent chatter of the red squirrel from the top of the grub camp, and the pert chirp of the whiskey jack hopping about on the rubbish heap with the long lone cry of the wolf far down in the valley only made the silence felt the more as i stood drinking in with all my soul the glorious beauty and the silence of mountain and forest with the christmas feeling stealing into me graham came out of his office and catching sight of me called out glorious christmas weather old chap and then coming nearer must you go tomorrow I fear so, I replied, knowing well that the Christmas feeling was on him, too. I wish I were going with you, he said quietly. I turned eagerly to persuade him, but at the look of suffering in his face the words died at my lips. 
for we both were thinking of the awful night of horror when all his bright brilliant life crashed down about him in black ruin and shame i could only throw my arm over his shoulder and stand silent beside him a sudden jingle of bells roused him and giving himself a little shake he exclaimed there are the boys coming home soon the camp was filled with men talking laughing chafing like light-hearted boys they're a little wild tonight said graham and tomorrow they'll paint black rock red before many minutes had gone the last teamster was washed up and all were standing about waiting impatiently for the cook's signal the supper tonight was to be something of a feed when the sound of bells drew their attention to a light sleigh drawn by a buckskin bronco coming down the hillside at a great pace the preacher i'll bet by his driving said one of the men but dad and it's him with a foin nose for turkey said blaney a good-natured jovial irishman yes and for a payday more like said keefe a black-browed villainous fellow countryman of blaney's and strange to say his great friend big sandy mcnaughton a canadian highlander from glenberry rose up in wrath bill keith said he with deliberate emphasis you'll just keep your dirty tongue off the minister and as for your pay it's little he sees of it or anyone else except mike slavin when he's too dry to wait for someone to treat you or perhaps father ryan when the fear of hellfire is on you the men stood amazed at sandy's sudden anger and length of speech bone that's good for you my bully boy said baptiste a wiry little french canadian sandy's sworn ally and devoted admirer ever since the day when the big scotchman under great provocation had knocked him clean off the dump into the river and then jumped in after him it was not until afterward i learned the cause of sandy's sudden wrath which urged him to such unwanted length of speech it was not simply that the presbyterian blood carried with it reverence for the minister but that he had a vivid remembrance of how only a month ago the minister had got him out of mike slavin's saloon and out of the clutches of keefe and slavin and their gang of bloodsuckers keefe started up with a curse baptiste sprang to sandy's side slapped him on the back and called out you kill him i'll eat him up me it looked as if there might be a fight when a harsh voice said in a low savage tone stop your row you fools settle it if you want to somewhere else i turned and was amazed to see old man nelson who was very seldom moved to speech there was a look of scorn on his hard iron-gray face and of such settled fierceness as made me quite believe the tales i had heard of his deadly fights in the mines at the coast before any reply could be made the minister drove up and called out in a cheery voice merry christmas boys hello sandy come as va, baptiste how do you do mr graham first rate let me introduce you to my friend mr connor sometime medical student now artist hunter and tramp at large but not a bad sort a man to be envied said the minister smiling i am glad to know any friend of mr graham's i liked mr craig from the first he had good eyes that looked straight out at you a clean-cut strong face well set on his shoulders and altogether an upstanding manly bearing he insisted on going with sandy to the stables to see dandy his bronco put up decent fellow said graham but though he is good enough to his bronco it is sandy that is in his mind now does he come out often i mean are you part of his pairs so to speak i have no doubt he thinks so and i'm blowed if he doesn't make the presbyterians of us think so too and he added after a pause a dandy lot of prisoners we are for any man there's sandy now he would knock keith's head off as a kind of religious exercise but tomorrow 
Keefe will be sober, and Sandy will be drunk as a lord, and the drunker he is, the better Presbyterian he'll be, to the preacher's disgust. Then, after another pause, he added bitterly, But it is not for me to throw rocks at Sandy. I am not the same kind of fool, but I am a fool of several other sorts. Then the cook came out and beat a tattoo on the bottom of a dishpan. Baptiste answered with a yell, but though keenly hungry, no man would demean himself to do other than walk with apparent reluctance to his place at the table. At the further end of the camp was a big fireplace, and from the door of the fireplace extended the long board tables, covered with platters of turkey not too scientifically carved, dishes of potatoes, bowls of applesauce, plates of butter, pies, and smaller dishes distributed at regular intervals, two lanterns hanging from the roof, and a row of candles stuck into the walls on either side by means of slit sticks cast a dim, weird light over the scene. There was a moment's silence, and at a nod from Graham, Mr. Craig rose and said, I don't know how you feel about it, men, but to me this looks good enough to be thankful for. Fire ahead, sir, called out a voice quite respectfully, and the minister bent his head and said, For Christ the Lord who came to save us, for all the love and goodness we have known, and for these thy gifts to us this Christmas night, our Father make us thankful. Amen. Bon, that's first rate, said Baptiste. Seem like that's make me more better for sure. And then no word was spoken for a quarter of an hour. The occasion was far too solemn and moments too precious for anything so empty as words. But when the white piles of bread and the brown piles of turkey had for a second time vanished, and after the last pie had disappeared, there came a pause and a hush of expectancy, whereupon the cook and cookie, each bearing aloft a huge blazing pudding, came forth. Hooray! yelled Blaney. Up with yez! And grabbing the cook by the shoulders from behind, he faced him about. Mr. Craig was the first to respond, and seizing the cookie in the same way, called out, Squad, fall in! Quick march! In a moment, every man was in the procession. Strike up, Batches, ye little angel, shouted Blaney, the appellation of concession to the minister's presence. And away went Baptiste in a rollicking French song with the English chorus. Then blow ye winds in the morn, and blow ye winds, I yo. Blow ye winds in the morn, and blow, blow, blow. And at each blow, Every boot came down with a thump on the plank floor that shook the solid roof. After the second round, Mr. Craig jumped up on the bench and called out, Three cheers for Billy the Cook! In the silence following the cheers, Baptiste was heard to say, Bon, that's make me feel like hit that puddin' up all by myself. Me? Here to the little bast, said Blaney in disgust. Batches, remonstrated Sandley gravely. You've more stomach than manners. For sure. But the more stomach, that's more better for this pudding, replied the little Frenchman cheerfully. After a time, the tables were cleared and pushed back to the wall and pipes were produced. In all attitudes, suggested of comfort, the men disposed themselves in a wide circle about the fire, which now roared and crackled up the great wooden chimney hanging from the roof. The lumberman's hour of bliss had arrived. Even old man Nelson looked a shade less melancholy than usual as he sat alone, well away from the fire, smoking steadily and silently. When the second pipes were well a-going, one of the men took down a violin from the wall and handed it to Lachlan Campbell, 
There are two brothers, Campbell, just out of Argyle, typical Highlanders. Lachlan, dark, silent, melancholy, with the face of a mystic, and Angus, red-haired, quick, impulsive, and devoted to his brother. A devotion he thought proper to cover under biting, sarcastic speech. Lachlan, after much protestation interposed with jibes from his brother, took the violin, and in response to the call from all sides struck up Lord MacDonald's reel. In a moment the floor was filled with dancers, whooping and cracking their fingers in the wildest manner. Then Baptiste did the Red River Jig, a most intricate and difficult series of steps, the men keeping time to the music with hands and feet. When the jig was finished, Sandy called for a Lockhaber no more, but Campbell said, No, no, I cannot play that tonight. Mr. Craig will play. Craig took the violin, and at the first note I knew he was no ordinary player. I did not recognize the music, but it was soft and thrilling, and got in by the heart till everyone was thinking his tenderest and saddest thoughts. After he had played two or three exquisite bits, he gave Campbell his violin, saying, Now, Lockhaber, Lachlan. Without a word, Lachlan began, not Lockhaber. He was not ready for that yet. But the flowers of the forest, and from that wandered through Auld Robin Gray, and the land of the Leal, and so got at last to that most soul-subduing of Scottish laments, Lockhaber no more. At the first strain his brother, who had thrown himself on some blankets behind the fire, turned over on his face, feigning sleep. Sandy McNaughton took his pipe out of his mouth and sat up straight and stiff, staring into vacancy. And Graham, beyond the fire, drew a short, sharp breath. We had often sat, Graham and I, in our student days, in the drawing-room at home, listening to his father wailing out Lockhopper upon the pipes, and I well knew that the awful minor strains were now eating their way into his soul. Over and over again the Highlander played his lament. He had long since forgotten us, and was seeing visions of the hills and lochs and glens of his faraway native land, and making us, too, see strange things out of the dim past. I glanced at old man Nelson, and was startled at the eager, almost piteous look in his eyes and I wished Campbell would stop. Mr. Craig caught my eye, and, stepping over to Campbell, held out his hand for the violin. Lingerly and lovingly the Highlander drew out the last strain and silently gave the minister his instrument. Without a moment's pause, and while the spell of Lockhopper was still upon us, the minister, with exquisite skill, fell into the refrain of that simple and beautiful camp-meeting hymn, the sweet by-and-by. After playing the verse through once, he sang softly the refrain. After the first verse, the men joined in the chorus, at first timidly. But by the time the third verse was reached, they were shouting with throats full open, We shall meet on that beautiful shore. When I looked at Nelson, the eager light had gone out of his eyes, and in his place was a kind of determined hopelessness, as if in this new music he had no part. After the voices had ceased, Mr. Craig played again the refrain, more and more softly and slowly. Then, laying the violin on Campbell's knees, he drew from his pocket his little Bible and said, Men, with Mr. Graham's permission, I want to read you something this Christmas Eve. You will all have heard it before, but you will like it nonetheless for that. His voice was soft but clear and penetrating, as he read the eternal story of angels and the shepherds and the babe, 
and as he read, a slight motion of the hand or a glance of an eye made us see, as he was seeing, the whole radiant drama, the wonder, the timid joy, the tenderness, the mystery of it all, were borne in upon us with overpowering effect. He closed the book and, in the same low, clear voice, went on to tell us how, in his home years ago, he used to stand on Christmas Eve listening in thrilling delight to his mother telling him the story and how she used to make him see the shepherds and hear the sheep bleeding nearby, and how the sudden burst of glory used to make his heart jump. I used to be a little afraid of angels, because a boy told me they were ghosts, but my mother told me better, and I didn't fear them any more. And the baby, the dear little baby, we all love a baby. There was a quick dry sob. It was from Nelson. I used to peek through under to see the little one in the straw, and wonder what things swaddling clothes were. Oh, it was real and so beautiful. He paused, and I could hear the men breathing. But one Christmas Eve, he went on in a lower, sweeter tone, there was no one to tell me the story, and I grew to forget it, and went away to college, and learned to think that it was only a child's tale and was not for men. Then bad days came to me, and worse, and I began to lose my grip of myself, of life, of hope, of goodness, till one black Christmas, in the slums of a faraway city, when I had given up all, and the devil's arms were about me. I heard the story again, and as I listened, with bitter ache in my heart, for I had put it all behind me, I suddenly found myself peeking under the shepherd's arms with a child's wonder at the baby in the straw. Then it came over me like great waves that his name was Jesus, because it was he that should save men from their sins. Save, save! The waves kept beating upon my ears, and before I knew I had called out, Oh, can he save me? It was in a little mission meeting on one of the side streets, and they seemed to be used to that sort of thing there, for no one was surprised and a young fellow leaned across the aisle to me and said, Why, you just bet he can. His surprise that I should doubt, his bright face and confident tone, gave me hope that perhaps it might be so. I held out that hope with all my soul, and, stretching up his arms and with a quick glow in his face and a little break in his voice, he hasn't failed me yet. Not once. Not once. He stopped quite short, and I felt a good deal like making a fool of myself, for in those days I had not made up my mind about these things. Graham, poor old chap, was gazing at him with sad yearning in his dark eyes. Big Sandy was sitting very stiff and staring harder than ever into the fire. Baptiste was trembling with excitement. Blaney was openly wiping the tears away. But the face that held my eyes was that of old man Nelson. It was white, fierce, hungry-looking, his sunken eyes burning, his lips parted as if to cry. The minister went on. I didn't mean to tell you this, men. It all came over me with a rush. But it is true, every word, and not a word will I take back. And what's more, I can tell you this. What he did for me, he can do for any man, and it doesn't make any difference what's behind him. And leaning slightly forward and with a little thrill of pathos vibrating in his voice. Oh, boys, why don't you give him a chance at you? 
without him you'll never be the men you want to be and you'll never get the better of that that's keeping some of you now from going back home you know you'll never go back till you're the men you want to be then lifting up his face and throwing back his head he said as if to himself jesus he will save his people from their sins and then let us pray graham leaned forward with his face in his hands baptiste and blaney dropped on their knees sandy the campbells and some others stood up old man nelson held his eye steadily on the minister only once before had i seen that look on a human face a young fellow had broken through the ice on the river at home and as the black water was dragging his fingers one by one from the slippery edges there came over his face that same look i used to wake up for many a night after in a sweat of horror seeing the white face with its parting lips and its piteous dumb appeal and the black water slowly sucking it down nelson's face brought it all back but during the prayer the face changed and seemed to settle into resolve of some sort stern almost gloomy as of a man with his last chance before him after the prayer mr craig invited the men to a christmas dinner next day in blackrock and because you're an independent lot we'll charge you half a dollar for dinner and the evening show then leaving a bundle of magazines and illustrated papers on the table a godsend to the men he said good-bye and went out i was to go with the minister so i jumped into the sleigh first and waited while he said good-bye to graham who had been hard hit by the whole service and seemed to want to say something i heard mr craig say cheerfully and confidently it's a true bill try him sandy who had been steadying dandy while that interesting bronco was attempting with great success to balance himself on his hind legs came to say good-bye come and see me first thing sandy i i know i'll see you mr craig said sandy earnestly as dandy dashed off at a full gallop across the clearing and over the bridge steadying down when he reached the hill steady you idiot this was to dandy who had taken a sudden side spring into the deep snow almost upsetting us a man stepped out from the shadow it was old man nelson he came straight to the sleigh and ignoring my presence completely said mr craig are you dead sure of this will it work do you mean said craig taking him up promptly can jesus christ save you from your sins and make a man of you the old man nodded keeping his hungry eyes on the other's face well here's his message to you the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost to me to me said the old man eagerly listen this too is his word him that cometh unto me i will in no wise cast out that's for you for here you are coming you don't know me mr craig i left my baby fifteen years ago because stop said the minister don't tell me at least not tonight perhaps never tell him who knows at all and who never betrays a secret have it out with him don't be afraid to trust him nelson looked at him with his face quivering and said in a husky voice if this is no good it's hell for me if this is no good replied craig almost sternly it's hell for all of us the old man straightened himself up looked at the stars then back at mr craig then at me and drawing a deep breath said i'll try him 
As he was turning away, the minister touched him on the arm and said quietly, Keep an eye on Sandy tomorrow. Nelson nodded and went on. But before we took the next turn, I looked back and saw what brought a lump into my throat. It was old man Nelson on his knees in the snow, with his hands spread upward to the stars. And I wondered if there was any one above the stars and nearer than the stars who could see. And then the trees hid him from my sight. End of chapter 11 Recording by Kurt Trotwine